Well, good morning and welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you would want to dismiss your kids at this time for Aletheia Junior, uh, our teachers will be at the back there and you can meet them. Uh, they can meet their teachers back there and go away for the, for the kids' time. Um, if this is your first time with us or you haven't yet gotten one, uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges for this week and next week. Uh, if you want, we have scripture journals for you. That would be our free gift to you. Uh, it's just the scripture journals are pretty cool. They're little books that have uh, the book of Judges in it and then an opportunity to take notes on the other side. So if you want one, just raise your hand. We'll have a few people around here that would love to give that to you uh, as a free gift. Uh, so as I just said, uh, we've got two weeks left uh, of our study in the book of Judges, and we've kind of been on overdrive here the last couple weeks. So I appreciate you guys putting up with us running through these narratives rather quickly. Um, but what we have seen uh, throughout the book of Judges um, are consistent themes um, over and over again, kind of each chapter we go through. Uh, and, and I want to just put those three up there. I shared those with you the very first week that we st started studying this book together. Uh, but I want to just kind of remind you of that as we're moving through our time this morning. Uh, the first one is that we would see Israel's growing rebellion and apostasy, that they would move further and further away from following God, and they would start following after the gods of the cultures around them. And as they would do this, one of the things that God would make clear to us as we studied the book was that we would see that there was a great importance for godly leadership over God's people, that God has consistently raised up leaders for Israel to deliver them from oppression and often lead them back to God, that God would raise these judges, both men and women throughout the book of Judges, that would be used by him to point God's people back to him and the blessing that was promised in following after him. And then the last thing that I said we would see consistently throughout the book of Judges, and this is really something you see throughout the totality of scripture, is the faithfulness of God. That God is compassionate and long-suffering with his people and that he chooses to deliver and save them time after time after time after time here in the book of Judges. And so as Jeff just read for us, chapter 17 kind of begins a what I, what I would consider to be a pretty significant shift in the book of Judges. Um, each section or each kind of chapter as we've moved into it, or at least uh, each individual story as we've moved into it, has kind of followed a, a similar straightforward pattern and narrative. It starts with um, Israel rebels. They run after other gods. A new oppressor arises from outside of Israel to oppress God's people. And then God raises a judge up to deliver Israel and point them back to God. That's kind of the, the consistent theme for the most part that we've seen throughout each separate story throughout the book of Judges. And as we move into chapter 17 uh, and the remaining chapters that we're going to study over this week and next week, what we're going to see is not so much oppression from outside of Israel drastically affecting God's people, but the moral and religious decay of Israel itself has reached a point where there's complete societal decay. That the oppression and the problems that are going to start occurring for God's people now are going to become almost completely from within. And we've seen foreshadowing of that leading up to this in previous weeks, how God's people walking away from him has gotten worse and worse. And as they've done that, the problems that have arisen from that. But we are now at the point in the story where God's people have just completely lost it. That they're completely living life their own way and it's leading them to try to create God in the image and likeness that they want him to be in. You know, one of the things that God had said to his people before they had ever entered the land of Canaan and, and, and possessed it, as God had promised them in the book of Joshua and even before that, was that if they followed after God, if they worshiped him, if they obeyed him, it would go well with them. And there were some reasons for that, but primarily because God is the creator of the universe and therefore he might know a thing or two about how life might go well for us. And as Israel moved further and further away from that, the, the promise that God had also made to them was that if they didn't follow after him, they would experience curses. And Israel has walked into this season of their life as a nation and as a people and as a culture where they have decided 
We are interested in the God of the Bible, but there are things about him we don't like. And so we are going to fashion a version of Yahweh that we are more comfortable with and that is more easy to digest and, and participate in. For those of you guys as kids that ever read those Choose Your Own Adventure books, Israel was kind of after that line of thinking, except it was choose your own God. And you can make him out to be whatever you want him to be. You know, David Guzik in his commentary on the book of Judges puts this chapter, chapter 17 and chapter 18 into this light. He says, by his fallen nature, man wants to make God into his image. Many religious people carve their own concept of God and assume that this is the God of the Bible. But it takes real effort to understand and actually accept the God of the Bible. You know, what, what he's trying to get across and help us to understand as we look at this story this morning and see what happens is that oftentimes we can convince ourselves that we're following the God of the Bible, but what we're actually doing is following a God of our own imagination and just attaching the name of Yahweh to it. And that every time that happens, what actually ends up happening is that sorrow and oppression, destruction, sin is the aftermath of our choice to do that. And so I've kind of got two main points that I think the text shows us this morning and that, that we'll be zeroing in on. One is for chapter 17 and one is for chapter 18. But the first one is this, that creating a God of our own design can often seem better. You know, God is not always easy or safe to comprehend. There are things that God says about himself in his word that sometimes are hard to swallow or deal with. And one of the things that we need to recognize if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we are followers of God, his disciples, that we need to be okay with is that sometimes there are things that God says are true and we might not like it, but it doesn't make it any less true. And trying to fashion God into something that he says he is not, will not lead to more people coming to know God. It will not lead to more freedom. It will not lead to more joy. Actually, the opposite will be the case. And we actually will see that this morning because in chapter 18, what we see is that man-made gods always end up disappointing at the end of the day. So turn over to Judges chapter 17 with me. What I'm going to do since Jeff already read that for us this morning is I'm going to go ahead and just kind of move through each section and summarize it, but I'm not going to actually read it for us because you guys should be familiar with it already. So in those first six verses, this is a crazy story. And again, I, I've said this time and time again, and this is one of the reasons why I love reading the Old Testament is God just puts it out there. He's like, dude, my people are messed up. And they are, they are hot. And this story is really, like some of the other stories we've read, like Abimelech's story, like that one was really sad and just like kind of depressing at how like the wickedness of God's people was kind of put fully on this. This story here is just like odd. Like it's just so weird, right? Like you see there's this guy named Micah and he's an Ephraimite. And the story just kind of starts out, and it almost seems like it comes out of nowhere. It's like You can tell very clearly that in this story, the author of the book of Judges is trying to get us to understand a little something about the nation of Israel during this time period without talking about the whole nation. He's like, hey, yeah, there's this guy named Micah. He's an Ephraimite, and he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. And now, 1,100 pieces of silver, by the way, guys, is a huge fortune at this time. Like the average wage was somewhere between 10 and 20 pieces of silver a year. So you're, you're talking about decades worth of family and generational wealth that this guy was like, yeah, I'm just going to take that from my mom. It's casual. I'm like, not a big deal. And so his mom, right, it says, put this curse over whoever took it. And evidently Micah finds out about this curse. And so he's like, well, I don't want to be cursed. Right? We should have stolen from your mom, dude. Like, let's, let's start with the moral dilemma here. But sure, a curse has been laid on you. So he goes to his mom. And he's like, hey, mom, you know that, you know that 1,100 pieces of silver that you curse somebody for? Oops. Like, I took that. My bad. And here's the best part. His mom goes from being furious that her generational wealth has been stolen to be like, oh, son, that's okay. Like, no problem, right? Like, like no discipline, no anger, no frustration. She's just like, oh, no big deal. And then this is the, this is the real kicker. She decides that since her wealth is back, 
she's going to dedicate that money to the Lord. She's like, yeah. Like, and, 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 and when you first start reading this, you're like, oh, okay. Like, this is good, right? Like, God's people are responding. We see justice being served. Like, there's movement here. And then you find out, well, not really. Because she takes the money and says she takes 200 pieces of the silver and she gives them to a metalsmith who then makes new gods and an ephod for Micah, who then makes his own temple inside of his house and ordains his son as a priest. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with, with the Old Testament law, but this is a clear violation of God's law, right? Throw up Exodus chapter 20, verses four through five with me, right? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Right, so whether Micah and his mother have decided that they really love Yahweh and that that they want to create their own temple to him inside of their, their little community, or they've just created their own gods. Either way, what they've done is a clear violation of God's law. And this is the first thing I want you to notice. Just because your intention is to worship God does not mean you get to define the terms of that worship. In the same way that if someone wrongs you, and this is something I've, one of the most important things I've been able to kind of see as a pastor over the last 15 years of my life, there will be relational conflict between two people and Whoever was the perpetrator of, of this, the primary act or sin in the relationship, they'll often go to the person they sinned against and then they'll apologize. And then there'll be this conflict that continues to swell between those two people. And so they're coming to me for some sort of mediation. And as I'm sitting there with them, the, I can identify the problem usually within the first two minutes is that the person that committed the sin is trying to define the terms of repentance. When you've sinned against somebody, and you're asking them for forgiveness, what God is asking you to do is to display humility and then walk out a process of repentance and restoring trust with that person. You don't get to define those terms. That person does. Now, there is a God-given, right, God-ordained, reasonable level of restoration that occur. Like if, you, if, if someone has stolen $5 from you and you ask for 10,000 in return, we probably need to have a discussion. Right, But if the person is not attempting in any way to restore trust, right, there's a reason why there's no restoration of trust in that relationship. And in the same way, God right, has created us and designed us and made us as in his image and likeness to worship him, to follow after him, to obey him, and to display his glory to the world around us in the way that we live our lives. And therefore, we don't get to define what that looks like the creator does. And what's going on here is that Micah and his mother, as well-intentioned as they may or may not be, are attempting to worship God in a way that he has clearly, in his word, defined as sinful. Guys, this is really, really important for us to understand in 2022. God does not bless and approve of things that he has clearly lined and laid out in his word for us as sinful. You cannot, you cannot be in open rebellion towards the Lord, sinning against him, violating his word, and expect that God is in full approval and agreement with what you're saying. Now, what I'm saying right now is not going to be popular on social media. It's not going to get me inv invited on CNN. It's not going to get me invited to, to any media place to speak. But it's what God's word teaches us. That if you are in open rebellion to clear commands of scripture, do not expect that God is happy with that. 
The opposite is true, and we, we're going to end up seeing that as we continue to see this story play out. And verse 6 gives us a clue as to what the author of Judges wants us to see as the big issue plaguing the nation of Israel during this time. Yes, he's sharing a story of a simple family of Ephraim, a guy named Micah and his mother, but he's trying to get us to see that this was a moral decay and spiritual decay across the entire nation of Israel, not just amongst these people. Look at what he says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He says there was no king to hold people accountable to God. People were doing whatever they wanted, which included making up their own religions and their own way to follow after God. As this is the primary issue of our day, at least in the United States, you know, because of our cultural history and our cultural background that many of the people that moved here, at least in the founding of this country, were here. They were followers of God, but they were here running away from state persecution, from the way that they were practicing their religion, that this country has a lot of various religious hangover in many ways. And especially for those of us that grew up in Florida and we lived in the South, even more so. It's called the Bible Belt for a reason. Well, what often is what we are experiencing culturally and what we are seeing as a country is that there's this shift in trying to still hold on to the cultural past of being followers of God, but create a new God in his place instead of the God of the Bible who was originally worshiped. Right, you'll hear Things like this all the time, especially for those of you guys that are in the room that are college students. I know you've heard this. Well, yeah, I, I went to church or I know you go to church and that's good for you. I'm excited for you, but I can't worship a God that does. And then they have their list of reasons, X, Y, Z, why they have a problem with the God of the Bible. But then they'll use things like I'm still spiritual and I still believe in Jesus and I still want to follow him, but just the things I want to choose and follow. Could you imagine going into a relationship and clearly defining the terms of that relationship? And as you sit there and say, well, I really like you and I want to marry you, but I don't want to be loyal to you. And I don't, I don't really want to have to help pay the mortgage. And I'd like you to pay the light bill. I might help out with food if I'm interested. How would you feel about the overall success of the future of that relationship? I hear some giggling, right? Not real high, right? And yet we feel like we can treat God that way. And what people are really saying when they drop lines like this or what the culture is really saying to us in general about God is this. I don't like God, so I'm going to make my own. You know, this has been an issue for generations, but back in 2005, there were some sociologists that saw the writing on the wall that the culture was heading this way. It was a guy by the name of Christian Smith and Melina Denton. And they coined the type of theology that is now plaguing our society as moralistic therapeutic deism. Some of you guys have heard me point this out before. But here are the core beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism. And you guys are going to recognize a ton of these as you see them because you might even hold to some of them yourself and not realize it. Right? Number one, you believe that God exists or a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, right? That's fairly simple, right? There's a God out there. Okay. Number two, God wants people to be good. He wants them to be nice, fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most religions. It's like, yeah, there, there's, some, there's some good moral things taught in the, in the scripture and God kind of wants us to follow after that. So, so far we're kind of heading in the right direction. But, but here's where things really, really get off the rails, right? Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. How about number four? God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem, right? Another way to put that is like, God's kind of like just the, the guy who ordained everything, kind of started it, but he doesn't really want to be involved in your life, but he's kind of there um, waiting by the phone if you need to give him a call. That's how most people kind of view God in the U.S. now. And then the fifth one is that good people go to heaven when they die. These are just like, core beliefs that many people that would call themselves spiritual or religious or maybe even a Christian, things they tend to believe about God and the God of the Bible. And we are all affected to some extent by this line of thinking in which we think we can do 
what is right in our own eyes and that it may still be good and honor God as long as the intentions were okay. You know, God's word would actually say something completely different to that. Throw up Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 for me, will you? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Let me repeat that. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. As we'll see with Micah and with the tribe of Dan, things, things can appear to be a blessing that actually become a curse. Things that appear to be good and right and for our good Right? appear to be good for, for everyone involved, can often end up becoming a curse at the end of the day. And so what we see as we continue in chapter 17 is that, that Micah has created this religion, and then it says that a Levite from Bethlehem traveled to Micah's area looking for an inheritance. And here's where having a little bit of knowledge of the Old Testament would immediately alert you to there's a problem going on here. The, the Levites shouldn't have been looking for an inheritance. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, look at what God had said to the Levites when he was promising what, what was going to happen for each tribe as they entered the Holy Land. He says, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So for this guy to be leaving Judah and going around looking for some way to receive an inheritance and a, and a way of living was actually outside of what God had told these, this group of people to be in the first place. And so he arrives at Micah's house, and not surprisingly, Micah's like, oh my gosh, wait a minute, hold on. We've created our own image of Yahweh. I ordained one of my sons as priest, but this guy's actually of like the bloodline of like the actual priesthood. I'm going to ask this guy to move in here. I don't know what he did with his son. It's just like, I'm going to ask this guy to be my priest. And he makes the deal pretty sweet for him. He's like, hey, I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothing. I'll take care of you if you'll just be the priest and run everything in my little house of worship. And of course, the Levite, who, let's be honest, clearly doesn't have the things of God being his primary motivation, but instead his own security and comfort being his primary mo motivation, is like, yeah, sure. I mean, this sounds like a pretty sweet deal. All I have to do is like lead your family in some worship a couple times a week and do whatever in front of these metal images. Yeah, sure, why not? That sounds like a pretty sweet gig. I won't have to work. Like, this is awesome. But look at the confusion that the Levites' compromise makes. Verse 13, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Just because there are material and worldly blessings does not mean that God is behind what we are doing. Just because a ministry is growing does not mean that God is behind that ministry. Just because people are declaring and confessing faith in Christ does not mean that that ministry is actually serving and worshiping the true God. We must not assume that just because things are going well in our lives that God is in full, of appro in full approval of whatever is going on. God calls his people to instead examine their lives in accordance with his word, and then obey him according to what it says, not what they think it should say. To not assume all is well if things are simply going okay. And this is why David Guzik said earlier in that quote that I gave you guys, that it is much harder to truly know God because what you're actually required to do is to consistently and daily, as a follower of Jesus, be examining your lives with the scriptures, not with those around you, and not even with yourself. And I'll submit this, and I'll be honest with you. It's much harder to do that. You know, the longer I've been a follower of Jesus, 
the more I've realized that the sins that I've put to death or the things that I've walked away from earlier on in my life as a Christian were just symptoms of much bigger heart issues that the Lord is trying to rip out. That they're symptoms of disease and death of a much larger decay that the Lord is sanctifying and trying to breathe new life into. And without the consistent examination of our lives in light of what God's word says, we will fail to walk through and see the true victory that God brings us in Christ. Because we're too busy looking at blessing and assuming that blessing automatically assumes that God is okay with us. And so what we see here, right, is that in in Judges chapter 17, Right, that it can seem, at least on the surface, that creating these own images of, of God and following after them is, is for our good, right, and that God will bless it. But we, what we see when we get to chapter 18 is that actually man-made gods always end up disappointing. In the first six verses, let me just kind of summarize to you what's going on here. The tribe of Dan is out seeking their inheritance. Now, remember This is because they had not dispossessed the Canaanites as they had been ordered by God. So they still don't have their own land yet because they didn't obey God and do what they were supposed to do in the book of Joshua and earlier on in the book of Judges. And so as they're moving into this land looking for an inheritance, they come across Micah and they meet his priest, use that term in quotations, and, and they're meeting with him, and one of the, you, you can tell immediately that they realize something is up. And I, I always love this portion of the story because they can tell by the way this guy is speaking that he's not from this tribe. And so they meet him, and they're like, what are you doing here? Like, you're a Levite. What? what, what? You're not supposed to be here. We know, we know where you're supposed to be. Why are you here? And, and the Levite explains to them, well, you know, Mike invited me to be his priest, and I thought it was a pretty sweet gig, so here I am. And Here's where you realize that the decay going on in Israel is far worse than just inside of Micah's family. Instead of being like, dude, God told you this was not okay. What are you doing? What, the tribe of Dan does something completely different. They're like, actually, cool. Well, while you're here, why don't you inquire of God for us? You know, you're in full rebellion and disobedience towards God, but eh, shoot, what do you have to say to us? Go to, go to God and ask him if the, the land we're looking to possess is good, if, if what we're doing is right. And so Micah, whose entire life is a sham anyway, is like, sure, I'll, I'll inquire of God, why not? So he inquires of the Lord, and not surprisingly, right, he responds to them, God is with you. It's going to be great. Your, your life's going to be awesome. Everything that you're doing is going to be awesome. And so, of course, right, no discernment, complete confusion in, in, in the tribe of Dan. They follow their advice. Now, normally, right, we would just say, why would we seek advice from this guy? But let's be honest, all of us have sought advice from people we probably shouldn't have sought advice from. And if we really had taken the time to examine their lives, examine what was going on, and really thought it through, we would have been like, ooh, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, my finances are a mess and this person's been bankrupt four times. But sure, give me some financial advice, why don't you? And so they leave and they send out some scouts, right? Because they've been promised that God is going to bless them and give them land. So they send some scouts out in verses 7 through 13. And they come to this place called Laish, which is a super peaceful place. The people that live there are super peaceful. They're economically sound. They're not bothering anybody. They're not oppressing the Israelites. They're a peaceful, friendly, kind kind of group of people in that area. They're nowhere near the main Sidonian land. There's no one that can come and defend them. They don't have any defenses themselves. And the Danites, they see this. They see that the land is great. They see that they need an inheritance. And so they're like, well, wait a minute. What should we do? Let's, let's go and take this land from these people. Right. By the way, God had never told them to attack these people. God had not ordained this. Right. If you look at the land that these the different tribes were supposed to take, God had preordained what nations were supposed to be dispossessed ahead of time. And this nation was not one of them. 
And so they go back and they remember the blessing and they're like, yeah, yeah, Micah's Levitical priest told us that this was all ours, so let's go back and set up. So they go back to the tribe of Dan and they tell them, hey, look, this place is really sweet. I think we should go dispossess it and dispossess this people and establish our land, our inheritance with these people. Let's just go destroy these peaceful people who have done nothing wrong. And this is the part where things start getting a little crazy. And they're like, hey, while we're at it, let's just steal Micah's gods and his priest. You know, he's been kind to us. He's let us use his idols and inquire of God of them. But, you know, let's just take them. I kind of liked what that priest told us. Let's just make him our priest instead. And so that's what they do. And they originally go, and the Levite priest is kind of like, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, he pretends like he cares. And they're like, what? Their, their response to him is so beautiful, and you get to see how actually messed up this guy is who's this priest. They're talking to him, and he's trying to stop them, and they're like, dude, pause a second. You're the priest over one house. Don't you want to be the priest over a whole tribe? <laughs> and, the, and the guy stops for a second and is like, yeah, actually, that's a pretty sweet gig. Right? Not only am I going to be financially secure, but I'll also be a celebrity. Why not add power to one of the many idols I get to serve? And so he leaves. Even more security, even more power, even more celebrity, and not a lick of it is following the word of God. And then look at verse 21 with me. This is where I want us to pick up and actually specifically look at the text. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, I love this, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away and ask what I have left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? It's like, hello, you just stole everything from me and you're wondering why I'm concerned? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. Micah is now confronted with the reality of his man-made religion. It fails. And the, the funny thing is, right, this God who was supposed to be serving in him and blessing him as being stolen by this bigger, stronger tribe... And actually, you see Micah trying to rescue his own gods and priests from being stolen from him. And Dan tells him, get lost. And Micah tucks his tail between his legs, turns around, and walks home. What kind of God is that? What kind of God is that to serve? A God that is easy to give up on. A God that can't defend himself. A God that displays no true power. A God that is that easy to give up on is a God that was never worth serving to begin with. And Micah finds out here what so many of us find out, that when we make things that are not God's into God's and they inevitably fail us, they weren't worth serving to begin with. You know, this God gave all these promises to, to Micah, right? I'll prosper your family. I'll be there and defend you. I'll be there with you to the end. Just follow a few of these rules and do a few of these things and everything will go well with you. The gods that we are fashioning today in our own image and likeness promise this very same thing and I'm here to tell you, they never deliver. The God of celebrity, fortune, 
love, acceptance, tolerance, whatever terms you want to use for the various things that we fashion into God's every single day of our lives, always promise to bring us joy, peace, love, security, and hope, and they always inevitably fail. And yet, there's still more to this story. Look at verse 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to the people, quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. Now I want to stop there for a second because the the author of Judges doesn't say anything here, but it's inferred from, from what's going on here. Micah's sin of creating this God has led to confusion even for the tribe of Dan to the point where they attack and ethnically cleanse an entire people group that God had never asked them to go to battle with and to steal land that he had never given them. The wickedness of following after your own gods actually doesn't just produce a joyous life. It often produces wickedness. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So Dan conquers Laish. Those warriors destroy a peaceful people that God had never once told them to conquer. If you remember correctly, one of the reasons that God said that Israel was supposed to dispossess the Canaanites and take the land of Canaan was because of the sin of the Canaanites. And that God had sent them there. And as a matter of fact, when the nation of Israel is in Egypt, they're being told they had to wait there longer because the sin of the Canaanites had not fully been birthed yet. That God had a purpose in all of this. And so Dan is directly defying the word of God by doing what they do. And then they set up the carved image in their own tabernacle for worship in the city of Dan. And it turns out that this Levite priest is actually from the line of Moses. And Dan and his tribe worship at this temple until the days of Saul and David, which, by the way, was expressly prohibited in God's word. That where the tabernacle was, that is where worship was supposed to occur. And so to do this, when you see in later chapters of um, the books of the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, and you see God say to one of his prophets that Israel and their people were on the high places worshiping and sacrifices, it's referring to things like this. Because the people of Israel could not be trusted to worship and honor and obey God as he had revealed himself in Israel. And so God's point to Israel was, we're only going to have one place of worship right now then because you guys won't do it properly. And it's supposed to be where the tabernacle's at. And God's people basically said, forget you, God. We'll do what we want, where we want, when we want. That's exactly what the tribe of Dan does here. And that sin leads to generational sin where these people worshiped God however they wanted, whenever they wanted, wherever they wanted. Notice how the individual apostasy of Micah and his family led to tribal apostasy and spiritual decay throughout the entire nation of Israel. You know, there's this kind of proverb or saying about who you hang out with. You become, you become who you hang out with, who you spend your time with, who you invest. There's a reason for Proverbs like that existing and lasting for generations because there's at least some level of truth to them. And you see that on a cultural and national scale come to play here for the nation of Israel. 
And basically, this tribal apostasy, what the author of Judges is trying to let us see is that there, weren't just in, there wasn't just individual sin amongst individual families and groups of people in the nation of Israel. No, this was an actual national level problem amongst God's people because they weren't following his word. Now, there's a ton of application in these two chapters. And church, if we're not careful, we run the risk of allowing ourselves to think that we are following after the God of the Bible, that we're disciples of Jesus, when really we have simply fashioned gods in our own image and likeness after our own design. Instead of maybe attacking specific things, what I'd like to do is I want to just prove that to you if we go back to that thing I shared with you earlier about the God of therapeutic moralistic deism, right? Uh, Something that I would submit is probably like the purveying cultural view of God, at least in the country we live in. Like if you spend any time getting to know people that, that don't consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, I would imagine that most of them hold to some form of this belief system. You want to know how I know that? I talk to unbelievers a lot. Right? And here, here, here were the basic beliefs, right? First one, right? There's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Right? Doesn't specify who that God is, though, or what that God does, right? But if we look at Isaiah 55, excuse me, Isaiah 45, right? Look at what God's word says. Truly you are God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. You are God, not anyone else. You are God. Right, let's look at that second point. There is no God other than the God of the Bible. And the second point says this, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Right? Notice how that belief system will support some of God's word, but it won't give full support to God's word. Because the overarching idea there is that God's people or people that follow after God just need to be good and nice and fair to each other, but they don't need to necessarily believe everything that God's word says. And yet, look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, and look at this part, suppress the truth. Right, this is where I said to you earlier that we must go to God's word to learn what he says about himself and to learn about who he is because this is one of those passages that is not going to be a ton of fun to deal with. Right? God basically says here, hey, listen up. My wrath is actually going to be poured out on all of you because you won't follow after me. You don't get to decide what right and wrong is. I do. And if you try to suppress the fact that I decide what right and wrong is, you are further displaying your own unrighteousness. You're further proving my point, which is exactly what this line of thinking does. The third one, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Throw Romans eleven thirty six 36 up there for me. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. You were created to glorify God, not to be happy. I don't, I don't mean to say that in a, in a mean or harsh way. I know, I know I'm going to get some people like, Kevin, you're being really mean this morning. Sorry. But, but I do you no justice by lying to you. Generations of us in this room have been lied to to think that happiness is what this world is all about, and it is not. Think about this for just like, and I, here we go. I'm moving away from my, my sermon notes, but, so buckle up. Think about just that line of thinking for a second, though, philosophically. If the goal of human life is for everyone to be happy, what, ha- what happens when your goal to be happy interferes with what I think happiness is? We've got a problem. It's a reason why God didn't design it that way, because guess what? There's a lot of opinions out there on what happiness would look like. God didn't design you to be happy. He didn't. And if you run after that your entire life, you might even find some happiness, but you're going to get to the end of your days and you're going to be without any joy. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Throw up John 15, 5. This is Jesus himself speaking. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God is not interested in being a small one hour a week part of your life. Actually, Jesus says here, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Guys, being a disciple and follower of Jesus is not a choose and pick when you want that to be time. Demands your life. That's why Jesus says that whoever wants to find his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. Guys, Christianity demands a lot. Demands everything of you. To truly follow Jesus is to lay down the lies of belief systems like this and to come instead into agreement with God and his word because it's right. right look at this fifth one. Good people go to heaven when they die. Right, throw up Luke 18, 19 for me. I love this because this is one of those passages where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trip Jesus up and they call him good teacher and look at Jesus' response to them. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is simultaneously teaching all of us two things here. One, I'm God, because you've noticed I'm good and it's true. And two, you are not. And neither are any of you. And neither am I. Right, like we'll use that terminology to describe people that are easy to get along with or display some level of like empathy and kindness. Like, oh yeah, he's a good person. He's a pretty good person. He's a good dude. She's, yeah, she's, she's, she's good. She's sweet. She's, she's really nice. And the word of God says that the wrath of God is being poured out on all right, unrighteousness and those who suppress the truth. None of what I'm saying right now is going to make its way into a Hallmark card. And yet God's word clearly teaches it. And you have two options. The first option is to do what many choose to do. Like Micah or the tribe of Dan, to fashion a God after their own design because those types of things are hard to swallow. Or, You can look to the God of the Bible. A God who says all of these things, including the fact that no, none of us are good and that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on all unrighteousness. And yet know that that same God made a way to know him and to walk with him. And as Jesus says, to be the branches that are grafted into the vine. And look at what God says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, that's Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Church, if you don't take anything else away from anything I've said this morning, please hear this. That God is better than any God you could make up on your own. That God is better than any God the world offers you. That God is better than any security, any wealth, any power, any prosperity, any celebrity, any education, any job, any relationship, sex. He's better than all of it because he laid down his life to rescue us. What God are you serving? Are you serving one that you have created and fashioned with your own hands like Micah and his mother? Or are you by repentance and faith going to the word of God to serve the actual God of the universe? Because he's better. It's not easy. It's not even always safe. But he's better.
Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of response to this. I want you guys to just spend some time thinking about this. And here's what we're going to do. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, I would encourage you now to head to one of the tables and grab grab the elements for communion because we're going to take communion together as the body of Christ. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've been invited because your roommate brought you or a family member brought you or whatever else, I would encourage you not to take communion because because God's word actually says that you are storing up wrath for yourself by taking communion if you are not already a disciple of Jesus. And instead, I would ask you to maybe consider what was said this morning and consider, why am I not following Jesus yet? Why am I not obeying? Why have I not given my life and trusted through repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ and that by his wounds I've been healed? But when we take communion here as a church, the body of Christ, here's what we're doing. We are observing just as Jesus commanded his disciples, a way to honor him, to serve him, and to worship him in the way that he expressed to us that he wanted us to do so. And so we're going to, Take a few minutes as the people of God to ponder and reflect and remember the beauty of what Jesus Christ did for us. And then with that, we're going to observe the ordinance of communion together to worship him and to make much of him as he commanded us, not as we desire to do so. Communion is a way to celebrate our intimate connection and ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus invites all people who have trusted in him for salvation to partake in communion or the Lord's Supper. Communion is our opportunity as the people of God to spend time in quiet meditation considering and confessing our sins. And once we have confessed these sins... We partake in the bread and juice as an act of worship towards him. Communion is a reminder that Jesus freely gave his life so that we might be forgiven and adopted as God's children. We take it not as an act of contrition and penance, but worship because in Christ we have been forgiven. We also take the Lord's Supper as a foretaste to a future time but for eternity and with Jesus himself, we will dine at the banquet feast of Jesus in heaven. I'm going to lead us through a simple response time together where we might reflect on these things together as God's children. I would invite you just to take a moment and consider what was shared in the sermon this morning and take a moment to consider, am I worshiping the God of the Bible Or have I fashioned a God in my own image and likeness and who I would like to serve? And if so, how is that manifesting itself in my life? And here's the beautiful thing. You don't need to sit there and beat yourself up or to come up with a a rule uh, or, or 10 things you can do to immediately start following God the way he said. No, instead what God asks of his people is a broken and contrite heart. Just confess it to him and know that Christ died for that and rose again.